hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I am your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today, on episode 196, I'm joined by Dr. Sharon Feckert of Duke University. We discuss several topics, including her role training fellows at Duke, her research into alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone and its impact on the retina and the macula, and also a discussion of imaging and Alzheimer's disease and how ocular imaging can really give clues into this neurodegenerative disease. Remember, a list of financial disclosures can be found in the episode description, and you can claim CME credits for this episode and others at the American Academy of Ophthalmology website. Simply click on the link in the episode description. It will take you to the AEO website where you can enter your login details and claim your CME credits. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now honored to be joined by Dr. Sharon Feckert. Dr. Feckert is Professor of Ophthalmology and Associate Professor in the Department of Surgery at Duke University, where she also serves as the Associate Chief of Staff of the Durham VA and is the Director of the Duke Vitro-Retinal Surgery Fellowship Program. Dr. Feckert, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We have uh, the same question for all of our new guests, and it helps give, especially our younger listeners, some perspective on where people came from. So, why did you first decide on ophthalmology, and then why uh, retina? Well, you know, like any uh, excited medical student, you think you want to be either a pediatrician, then you change your mind, you want to be a psychiatrist. <laughs> and so I um, have looked and thought about many different specialties and was actually quite open. And so it ultimately came down to either gastroenterology or ophthalmology. And I remember when I walked into a lecture a little bit late, and I saw some uh, slides up on the screen of eyeballs, and I thought, oh, that is really disgusting. How could anybody operate on an eye? And I thought, I could never do that. And then the more I learned about ophthalmology, since you're not initially exposed to it, right, in medical school, it's an elective. I loved it. I thought the eye was so beautiful and the surgery was so uh, controlled, I think is a nice way to say it, and uh, clean. And so then I became very interested in ophthalmology and, and said, well, I need to do really well on my board. So studied really hard and you know, kicked some you-know-what on it and said, let's, let's go. So it, it's really been an amazing choice. And then you did you were thinking as you as you applied for ophthalmology residency, were you thinking about retina? Was some retina something you decided as a resident? Um, when did you decide to, to go that route? Yeah, so once I started in um, as an ophthalmology resident, uh, you know, just to back up for a minute, in medical school, my I was at the University of Chicago and my mentor was in glaucoma. And so a lot of the work that I did as a um, student was in glaucoma. Um, but once I started my residency at the Wilmer Eye Institute, I noticed that the um, retina specialists had a really nice clinic. Um, the VR service was on the top floor and had beautiful cherry wood. <laughs> and um, I noticed at that time around the country, a lot of the chairs were 
um, in retina. And so that was one thing that drew me toward the field. Um, but also the vitreoretinal surgeons weren't afraid of anything, right? They could handle the whole eye. And so if you saw a patient with choroidals or drop lenses, you know, for the anterior segment surgeons, in would walk the retina surgeon. And so that's another um, piece that drew me to the field initially, you know, as a very um, bushy-tailed, naive mm-hmm. resident. And then uh, you did your, your training at Hopkins, um, I saw. And that was a, you know, programs are always very rich in talent, but that was a very talent-rich time in terms of the attendings you were surrounded by. Yes, that's true. You know, a lot of the really, like, big players and the giants, so to speak, in the field were at Wilmer at the time, and many of them are still there. You know, that was when Dr. Morton Goldberg was chair, um, and Dr. Neil Miller in neuro-ophthalmology, and Dr. David Guyton in um, pediatric ophthalmology, and Harry Quigley and the group in glaucoma, so and Walter Stark. So those are really big names, and they're very accomplished people still there now, um, but those are the ones that I was you know, trained by, and Jean Dewan and Peter Campuchero, Neil and Susan Bressler, so really a lot of um, big names in ophthalmology. Now, for the listeners who don't have background, we're going to talk a little bit about alpha-melanocyte-stimulating hormone, which um, is not directly your passion, but uh, maybe applications may be part of your passion in terms of research. So tell our listeners, first of all, give us all some background. What is alpha-melanocyte-stimulating hormone, and why should we care about it? Why is it important for ocular disease? Okay, well, I can tell you a little bit uh, first on sort of how I stumbled on it. Um, so I was... Uh, reviewing a book on VEGF. And I was sort of sitting outside trying to read this entire book and get through it. And then I just was thinking about how VEGF was identified and how, you know, going on a tangent and thinking about how photodynamic therapy came about and just trying to put myself kind of above everything and sort of look at the trees or look at the forest instead of getting stuck in the trees. And I thought, well, for geographic atrophy, you know, we we haven't been able to find really a treatment for that so far. And I started thinking about melanocytes and started looking things up and started reading about alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone and, and became very interested in it. Um, so alpha MSH, as I like to call it, is a neuropeptide. And it's derived from POMC, or pro-opioid melanocortin. And so it's naturally found in intraocular fluid. Um, and it's also found in, found in the cerebrospinal fluid. Um, and it plays a role in the immune privilege in both of those fluids, the CSF as well as intraocular fluid. And it's widely expressed in a lot of the tissues, um, including the retina. And in fact, the RPE cells themselves are a specific source of alpha MSH, and and in culture, they produce alpha MSH as well. And so there are receptors on photoreceptors, and there are receptors on the RPE cells for alpha MSH, and and it plays a role in promoting cell um, survival. Um, So if you look at some of the known effects of alpha MSH, it it can... um, suppress 
pro-inflammatory signals. And uh, it can activate uh, T cells and just plays a role in the immunity. And so I thought, hmm, this is very interesting and it would be fascinating to measure levels of alpha MSH in eyes with um, you know, advanced and fovea involving geographic atrophy. Um, alpha MSH also can protect against RPE cell death um, that happens from reactive oxygen species, and we see that in eyes with AMD. And interestingly, you know, I've always asked myself, um, why is VEGF increased? Like, where's the ischemic stimulus in eyes with uh, neovascular AMD? Hmm. Right? You know, is it right. toroidal thinning causing ischemia? And so alpha MSH um, normal levels in the eye, which are like 10 to 30 picograms per mil, inhibits angiogenesis and downregulates VEGF. Um, so to me, it's really fascinating, and I've been um, collaborating with Andrew Taylor, who's a PhD at BU, who's spent 30 years studying alpha MSH and has a lot out there in the literature, and we've been working to um, try to measure alpha MSH because it's very, it's evolutionarily conserved, it's prone to proteolysis, um, quickly denatured, and so we're working to develop a system to measure it um, kind of in vivo mm -hmm. and then also to develop a high affinity monoclonal to it, which is, is actually not available. That's why existing elysis are really poor. Interesting. And, and, and you know, there's a lot of, I mean, this is kind of, there's so many signs to research, right? I think a lot of times in retina clinically, we're exposed to kind of the end product, right? We're exposed to our bevacizumab, our ranibizumab, Flibercept, now brolicizumab coming soon. Um, yeah. We don't necessarily all, all all the background work that has to be done, right, in terms of defining the pathway, defining, and that's really what your group has, has done. Your, your group has done many other things in terms of tying ocular disease to uh, neuronal disease, and, and, and you and, and Dilraj Graywell have written a, a few articles about Alzheimer's and the eyes. What kind of things have you guys learned about Alzheimer's from ocular imaging specifically? Because I think that, again, sometimes we get trapped in our bubble of, oh, retina, macular edema, macular generation. I mean, these patients, unfortunately, a, a, aging population, macular generation goes along with other things. And Alzheimer's is the leading cause of dementia, unfortunately, in the United States. And we've got an aging population. So what sort of things can tie us back to the medical community when sometimes we can get trapped in our bubble? Oh, well, we can really get trapped in the bubble. You know, we can just go along and just think eyes, 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 and the neurologists are like, neurology, neurology, neurology. But, right. you know, the eyes are direct extensions of the brain. And the more you read about it, there's so many similarities in terms of the intraocular fluid and cerebrospinal fluid. So there was that group up in Boston that also presented, I think, last year to show levels of amyloid beta and tau. Um, in the vitreous fluid of eyes of undergoing vitrectomy, and, and the patients didn't necessarily have dementia. And it correlated to the MMSE scores or the mini mental state exam scores. Um, but, you know, we have um, some papers that have been published, some that are in the peer review process, and some that are in the works. And we are actually um, continuing to actively image patients in the Duke Memory Clinic every single day. I have kind of a 
uh, squad now working with me. <laughs> but, um, you know, the big paper that we had that came out in the spring of 2019, so it was a cross-sectional study. Um, so it showed a moment in time, right? And it showed us that individuals with symptomatic Alzheimer's diagnosed clinically, right? So that means no PET imaging, looking for amyloid beta, no cerebrospinal fluid sampling, just a clinical diagnosis of Alzheimer's, um, had decreased retinal vessel density and perfusion density in the superficial capillary plexus compared to cognitively healthy community controls. And what's so nice about that study is it's, it's a really clean data set. So we, we excluded about a fifth to a quarter of our images from motion artifact, poor scan quality. Um, we had strict enrollment criteria, so we excluded confounders like diabetes, glaucoma, and other things that could cause changes in the OCTA and the OCT. And, um, you know, we, we really controlled for other factors in our analysis. So, you know, I feel really good about those findings, and, and it doesn't really tell us whether the, our findings of decreased vessel density is the cause or the consequence of Alzheimer's right now. There is so much more work that needs to be done in terms of looking at these patients longitudinally, looking at patients with um, the genetic risk factor, but no symptoms, and not everybody with the gene clearly gets Alzheimer's either. Right. Um, so there's so much work that we need to do. And and one thing I'm really excited about is we are now connected to um, um, a retina team and the well-known neurologist, Dr. Lopera, down in uh, Medellin, Colombia, South America. And that's where the early um, onset extended family, there's an extended family down there with early onset Alzheimer's with the presenilin gene. And so we're going to be imaging them down there, and, and we're really excited about it. That's great. You know, Yeah. I mean, it's pretty incredible the impact you've had across um, Duke. I mean, you're working in neurology. You've got your own sort of basic translational research with the Alpha MSH that we talked about. Uh, but you also are the director of the fellowship program there. You've spent uh, a few years um, as a mentor and as a teacher to fellows. In terms of teaching fellows. And let's start with the clinic because I think fellows spend a lot of time when they're applying for fellowship or in fellowship season. Now they're, they're always thinking about the OR. I was there. We're always thinking about the OR. Then you leave fellowship and you spend actually more of your time, even if you're in academic medicine, you spend more of your time in the clinic than the operating room. So what are kind of the biggest lessons you've learned teaching fellows clinically in terms of approaching patients in the office, whether it's medical retina, whether it's pre-oping a patient, what are the biggest things that fellows have to absorb early about being a good retina doctor in the clinic? Well, I think when I finished my training, and I, I loved my training, I thought it was excellent. Um, but after I finished my training, I was the chief resident at Wilmer. And when you're out there, I think one of the things that um, fellows sometimes don't learn, and you realize that when you're out on your own, is that decision-making that happens in the clinic. You know, should I operate on this person? Should I reoperate on this person? Right. Um, and sort of the order of things. What if they have 
issues in both eyes or detachments in both eyes. So I try to teach the fellows and say, you know, pretend I'm not here. Because when they know you're there, and that also happens in the operating room, when they know you're sitting right there, they maybe don't have that independence that they need or, you know, they can't make the decisions like they would if they were out there on their own. So, um, you know, when they're trying to peel an epiretinal membrane, for example, and they're gentle and trying, pretend I'm not here. And so I just tell you this little um, pearls or um, story. So I was in the OR with a fellow and it was sort of near the end of their fellowship. And I knew they could peel this ERM. And, you know, they started to get a little tremor. And so I could see that they were trying to focus, right, because it was somewhat adherent. Mm -hmm. And I saw them take a deep breath. And then, you know, once you see the tremor, the tremor starts getting worse. Right, right. And I was like, gosh, if I take over now, you know, the fellowship's almost done. This is not going to be good for their, their well-being, right? So I leaned over and I was like, okay, you're not peeling tumor off the brain stem, right? <laughs> Just go ahead and peel this ERM. You can do it. And then I could see it wasn't really helping. So I said, okay, I'm going to scrub out. I know you can do this. It's between oh, you, yourself, and you, like me, myself, and I. I go, you can do this. I'm leaving. And so I left and um, came back, and it was all done, and it, he did a great job. So That's super interesting. You know, it, it's so, I think the, the issue I've encountered, and you probably know this better, every single person is different, and every yeah. person with each attending is a completely unique interaction, right? So I try to remember this, that when I was a fellow, and we operated with over a dozen different attendings there were certain attendings that just could do no wrong that everything always went well and there are other attendings that just you never felt comfortable as the fellow and it had nothing to do with the attending doing anything it was just it almost became kind of mental where you're like yeah each time it's almost like a compounding problem just like the confidence builds with somebody they just have good you every time you go to peel it comes off easily there's no issues then you go with someone else and it's just the same exact case and it just doesn't go that way and it can get in your head a little bit. And I try to remember that when I'm with fellows now. And one of the things, you know, you referenced just leaving. I think that that's great. I don't think I have the blood pressure yet for that. I think that would make me. <laughs> I don't I've been the, here long enough, you know. I, would, I have the gray hairs. I don't. I, I have some gray hairs. I don't want them all to turn gray yet. But I think also, <laughs> even if you do switch, I think something that was super helpful as a fellow was not feeling like you were switched and that was it. So sometimes switching somebody and then switching them back in, right? So... I think that's important because I think psychologically, even the, the fellows with the sturdiest egos, it can be hard. It, it, being switched can sometimes feel like a punishment, even though it should not. It isn't a punishment. Right. Sometimes it's for reasons beyond you doing a good job or a bad job. You, the attending wants to finish the case. It's The attending feels that there's something else that needs to be done. They just want to take a look. You know, it, 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 It's yeah. not a referendum on the job that you're doing. It's a patient care situation where the patient takes priority and the education is... A priority, but it's not as high a priority as the patient, right? And so I right. think, though, even people with the strongest egos, that's hard to digest. Sometimes even the stronger the ego, the harder it is to digest. And <laughs> I think sometimes letting somebody s switch back, at least for me, that was helpful as a fellow. Maybe not for all fellows. Maybe some fellows would rather not get back in an eye if they're having issues and just take a minute to digest. But, and again, well, I, I, I remember. Thought, yeah, um, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I remember when I was a fellow and 
I was doing a case and I things were happening that I wasn't comfortable with and hadn't seen before. And so I'm looking at the attending and they're like, keep going, keep going. Right. <laughs> and I think that was an important learning moment too. Right. Well, I think the other thing it teaches you, like you leaving the room is I think, the, and I remember this when I started is it's completely different when you're alone. You actually can achieve sometimes much more than you expect because there is no safety net in a way. Right. There, there is, I think even psychologically, if you know that there's a safety net, then you don't necessarily rise up to a certain level. You know, I, yeah. I, I don't know if that's the right way to phrase it, but I also think it's super helpful. And, and you reference is, is attending not having a short memory with their fellows. You know, I think that sometimes I would worry as a fellow, oh, I did this the last time I was with this person and the best attendings and I had really good attendings. They just didn't, it never came up, right? It was never something that was brought up. It didn't change their behavior or attitude. I'm sure they, Again, I, mean, I don't think I did anything too, too bad, but I think it's just about not feeling like you're carrying this albatross that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger if you do make small mistakes here or there. Right. <laughs> yeah, I remember one fellow saying um, after they went out on their own, they said, gosh, I never quite realized all the things that you would do in the background to kind of prevent problems and yes. and keep yeah. things going smoothly, <laughs> like pinching the line or doing little things when they're not not necessarily noticing. Right, right. And, and you, you, you started by referencing decisions in the clinic. And I think that's something that's supremely under-discussed is not only that you have to make this, these, these decisions, but oftentimes... You need to make these decisions fairly expediently, right? You you have it's not that you just have one of these decisions in every clinic day with the pressures we have to see patients and kind of the way our clinics are set up. You may have fifteen of these decisions, and you know you have to make good decisions for everyone, not rush the decision, but still do it in a fast enough manner to get all those decisions done, and then communicate it effectively to where the patient feels confident that you're they're still going to be even if you or early in your career and you kind of have to consult with people that they're still going to feel comfortable in your hands. It's really an art in a lot of ways. And, and again, something that I think as a fellow, you wish you, you, you always look back and wish certain regrets. I don't have regrets, but you wish you kind of watch certain attendings more to see how they handle that because um, those decisions aren't always easy. Right. That's very true. And I think fellows should remember that they, you know, especially when a patient comes with stacks of records and, you know, it's very complicated with multiple problems is you can always tell the patient, you know, there's a lot of material to go through. And I know you've been waiting a long time today. And I'd really like to take the time to go over in detail and contact some of your other doctors. And I'd like to give you a call in the ne in the coming days. And sometimes they really appreciate that. That's wonderful. Well, Dr. Feckert, I really appreciate you, you taking time to talk to us. And again, um, we're in the thick of fellowship application season. I'll, you are the director of the program. I'll just let you close. You know, we do have some applicants who listen in or prospective residents, um, just kind of not even personally, but kind of the things that um, you value in, in a fellow, kind of the things that you look for in your best fellows. Uh, maybe a little words of inspiration to close and then we'll break. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think that Everyone who wants to be a retina specialist is going to be one and, and will do a great job if they set their mind to it. I think, you know, I look for um, someone who's hungry, somebody who is not afraid of hard work, um, who carries their load, who thinks outside the box, um, somebody who's really going to have an impact versus just saying they're going to have impact. 
And so um, we're really excited to, to meet individuals in this upcoming cycle. Terrific. Well, Dr. Cooker, thank you so much for your time and uh, looking forward to seeing you at Academy hopefully next week. Very good. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. As always, you can find this episode and all prior episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A, podcast.com. We have 196 episodes now as of today, including this one up on the website. They're sorted by category. I mean, it's really amazing. We've got our 200th episode coming up. We're almost almost exactly three years in, so got about 66 episodes a year that have come out. It's been a really amazing endeavor, and we really appreciate all the support we've gotten along the way. Those are all on the website. You can always contact us directly by clicking on the contact us link on our website or emailing us directly at retinapodcast.gmail.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at retinapodcast. And you can find us in your mobile device in the Apple Store or the Android Store. We love people who have left feedback in those places. Positive reviews are always really gratifying, really helpful. And uh, we're always looking for episode ideas, new ideas for the next year. Thanks again to Dr. Sharon Feckert for joining me for this episode. Thanks to Dr. Louis Kai, Dr. Michael Venicasa, and Dr. Angela Chang who put together this episode and the social media accompanying it. Thank you listeners for what you do. Uh, the patient care you deliver, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire here every week. This is Jay Schreeder signing off. Good feeling. This is straight from the cutter's mouth. <laughs>